agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government has the government love. The government has the government love. The government Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my conservative counterpart, Cleveland area attorney and defender of freedom, Jay Carson. Hey, good morning, Mike. Hey, Jay, how are you doing this morning? Oh, I'm afraid I'm I'm sinking like a lead-weighted walleye, uh, but... Um... Well, well. Hopefully, you could stay afloat. That, that's that. That story went. I think that went viral, like viral worldwide. I, I you know, I you sort always of at the epicenter of it. So, well, well, you are you are tied into these sort of these sort of weird uh, viral things in a way that I'm not, which I wouldn't have expected necessarily, because in some ways I feel like you're just such an out of touch elite. But that's a whole other story. So, anyway, um, so we do have a lot. We want to get to today uh, all sorts of stuff about, uh, well, nuclear Armageddon. That's always a good lead, right? Uh, you should uh, lead off with that. You know, I think generally speaking, yeah. Uh, but there's all kinds of other stuff we want to get to as well. Uh, restrictions on chips to China. Uh, Biden just letting all the dope smoking hippies out of jail. Uh, uh, more updates on the Trump search, a bunch of other stuff. And we are going to get to that in just one second. Okay, before we do get to that stuff, Jay, there are a couple quick update items I wanted to touch on. The first is Trey's use of the Ukraine, that term. Uh, uh, Trey, uh, a number of listeners have pointed out that Trey uses that term, the Ukraine, as opposed to Ukraine. And uh, I should point out that, you know, prior to 1991, that usage actually would have been correct. Uh, and while you know, 1991 was, I understand, a long time ago. Trey is just old enough and I think was politically aware at a young enough age that I think that initial usage uh, just somehow stuck in his head. And, and because prior to this, it wasn't a country that, you know, American politics folks like Trey and I talked about that much. I think he hasn't just had quite enough practice at switching over to the post-Soviet terminology. Um, you know, when thinking about that, uh, Jay, I was thinking, it, I called Russia the Soviet Union for actually quite a few years after there was no more Soviet Union, at least every once in a while. I don't know if that, that happened. Oh, and I, I think I've done the same, yeah. uh, even on the show. I think sometimes where I've, I've, instead of saying Russian, I've said Soviet. Yeah, I um, we grew up and I've, I've had to, I've had to catch myself on the the Ukraine uh, before again, just because growing up, uh, that's that's what it that's always what it was. was. Yep. So it's it's uh, it's not that that uh, Trey is a Putin lackey. Um, um, he, that, that we know of. Yeah, I, I uh, mentioned it to but, Trey and, and he said, uh, if I were any more anti-Russia, I'd be Tom Clancy. So, you know, but uh, <laughs> Yeah, like I really like that. Yeah, wow. I thought it was good. Oh, good. So anyway, the point I wanted to let folks know that no, Trey, Trey is not trying to make some sort of a sly political pro-Putin kind of statement, and he is aware of the issue, and I'm sure he is. Uh, he will. He will take take measures to call Ukraine Ukraine in the future. But anyway, so that's one update. A second quick update uh, on the. That New York state lawsuit against Donald Trump and his kids, you know, when Jay and I discussed that, uh, we both wondered about the extent to which this was a victimless crime in that you know, Trump's lenders haven't brought suit. And in, in, in his valuations, Trump's people didn't claim that there was any sort of a fully independent review of those asset values. So the lenders, in effect, 
hey, they just should have known better. They should have asked. So in our Facebook group, uh, listener Dave asked the following question in response to that discussion. In the segment about the civil case in New York, both Mike and Jay were critical of the case. And one of the things said is that no one is claiming to be harmed. But isn't the other side of the case that those same valuations were falsely deflated to avoid paying taxes? Aren't we, the American taxpayers, the wrong party? Um, and so I thought about that and read through the lawsuit more carefully. And I think the answer, I. yeah, and I think the answer to that is well, maybe sort of, because there are multiple allegations that in the lawsuit that the Trump organization did fraudulently appraise assets in order to lower their tax liability by millions of dollars, according to the lawsuit. And so there are distinctions between whether you're deflating or inflating. And depending on how tax law works out, that can be to your advantage or disadvantage to have a higher or lower value. So uh, my take on that is, yeah, you can make a case that it's not just the banks that are potentially uh, victims here, if you will. So, Jay, uh, any thoughts on that? So, well, yeah, and because I looked at it uh, from a, from a strictly real estate tax um, uh, lens, and and the way they they work real estate taxes in New York, as as in a lot of places, is the political entity, whether it's the county, whether it's the city, the borough, uh, I believe in, in New York, it's, it's just all of, all of New York uh, has its own um, tax valuation. They base the, the real estate tax valuation on the um, uh, market value, which is based on sales of uh, similar uh, properties, you know, similar nearby properties, all that kind of stuff that that's the calculation to do. And they, they make that, decision and they say here's your appraised value uh at that point you can always say you can always contest it saying no no you're wrong here you know we have something different um but that the the um the taxing authority that local taxing authority uh would never be in a position where it would necessarily be relying on uh the the organization's internal financials to come up with a valuation for real estate um so uh to that extent uh, would would deflating uh, values um, lower your your real estate taxes? No. Um, you pointed out though that to the extent that there are other programs uh, uh, that that Trump might qualify for, for example, tax credits or something like that uh, through a state or federal program, uh, which would require him to submit information and say, "Here's my value," and there's a cutoff threshold. Um, if he were to apply for those programs and, and get relief that he shouldn't, then yes, that would be uh, uh, defrauding at that point of essentially the federal or state government, whoever that taxing authority is. Um, so that, that, that is the, uh, yeah. So I, I think my, my response is, yeah, kind of, it's sort of like yours, kind of, sort of, um, but it seems that the, the bulk of the complaint was aimed at the idea of you are inflating uh, your valuations and telling these banks who are loaning you money um, that they're fully secured. And, and if you're dealing with Donald J. Trump, you want to be fully secured, um, uh, you know, when, when they may not have been. So. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So there is definitely a lot there in, in the lawsuit. And so, uh, yeah, they allegation after allegation after allegation. But anyway, um, so we, we hope that, uh, well, we always want to try to uh, get those uh, updates and clarifications out there at the top of the show and not buried somewhere in the back. And so uh, anyway, with that out of the way, we can get to nuclear Armageddon. Uh, 
Yeah. Jay, you suggested that, uh, well, you know, if, if, if it happens and we don't mention it, we, we're never going to hear the end of it. <laughs> if exactly. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. now, of course, that was my, that was, that was my concern is that we would, you know, next week people would be climbing out of the radioactive rubble and, uh, you know, yeah. taken to Facebook I, of Jay didn't even mention this, you know, and so um, we, we don't want yeah. that. And I've, what yeah. we're referring to here is president Biden's remark delivered at a Thursday meeting of democratic fundraisers that, well, first, Putin is not joking when he talks about potential use of tactical nuclear weapons or biological or chemical weapons because his military is, you might say, significantly underperforming. And that here's the big line. We have not faced the prospect of Armageddon since Kennedy and the Cuban Missile Crisis. Now, on Friday, the White House issued a statement that we have not seen any reason to adjust our own strategic nuclear posture, nor do we have indications that Russia is preparing to imminently use nuclear weapons. Um, now, honestly, I didn't really think much of this thing either way. I know there was a big blow up on Twitter and conservative circles and so forth, but because it seemed to me to be, well, it's an accurate statement, I think, though. I would say in usual Biden fashion, it was maybe not as well thought out and there's not enough of a filter perhaps in some ways between Joe Biden's uh, brain and his mouth, but uh, and certainly not a helpful thing to say in any non-private setting. But Jay, what, what are your thoughts on this? Oh, I mean, I, I largely agree with you, right, that, that this is not a um, change in policy or, or something like that. Um, and I, I do think it, it, the problem is it, it sort of, as you point out, I think Biden just says stuff, right. Um, and, and as, as, as did Trump, uh, as well. Um, but, uh, yeah, speaking with, you know, people who he's trying to raise funds from, uh, just, you know, um, there was, there was, there was a wonderful back in the, um, back in the day, the Obama administration, Saturday night live skit, um, where uh, uh, Obama is talking to Biden and, uh, um, you know, there was, he, he takes issue with something that uh, uh, Biden had said about him uh, during the primaries and, he, or no, it was, it was something else like undercutting Obama and the Obama and I forget who plays who uh, says like, Joe, did, did you actually say that? And the Biden in character uh, you know, replies, ah, who the hell knows? Um, <laughs> to me, that sort of strikes me as that's kind of the, 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 the sense of this was a one-off. Um, but that said, um, when, when you're really talking about, hey, you've got another nuclear-armed superpower who was out there saying, hey, we might use nukes, uh, albeit, you know, small, small-load tactical nukes, um, uh, it, that, that would behoove, you know, if, if you're the party of nuance, um, to not just wander into saying things like that. And to me, the, 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 the bigger issue uh, is not that, oh, Putin is going to launch a nuclear Armageddon, but the idea of we've never been this close to nuclear Armageddon implies uh, a, a disproportionate U.S. response. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and I think and it also, yep. go ahead. If I'm a paranoid Russian uh, and I hear this, you know, that, that uh, you know, we're at the verge of nuclear Armageddon, um, what that you know, says to me is, oh, wait a second, you're, are you saying the U.S. is going to, you know, it's a nuclear retaliation? Um, and, and that, that would be a big policy statement. 
Um, though, though, to be clear, to me, it's just it's it's one of those dumb, unforced errors. Yes. Yeah. To be clear, Biden didn't say we're at the verge of nuclear Armageddon. He said no, that we, said we haven't faced the prospect of Armageddon since. This. And so I think, well, again, which, I, which I, I'd, I'd quibble with that as far as historical. Accuracy. Well, there's there's some stuff in the 80s and you could point to a yeah. couple other things. But the yeah. point being is that it's even even if it is a true statement, uh, it's it's a misleading statement in the sense that we're still, I would argue, uh, a good a good ways off from any sort of imminent nuclear Armageddon, but that statement makes it sound like we're right at the precipice. And so again, Biden, yeah. Biden being uh, Biden, I think you know, but but yeah, so. yeah. No, I, I would I would tend to agree, but um, so true, but not helpful. Uh, you know, I'm I think doing it, that. Yeah. Generally, if you're president, if you're president of the United States, you might want to just kind of file away the idea that uh, don't don't be talking about Armageddon in any sense unless you're real, really, so, really. Yeah. So there was, Mike, you you will remember and appreciate this. Um, there was a time back in uh, the early 80s um, where Reagan was doing some sort of press thing and they were testing the mic, right? And, and as the test thing, Reagan joked, uh, I've just uh, signed legislation outlawing the Soviet Union Bombing will commence in ten minutes. <laughs> yeah, uh huh. Yeah, not a good. And, and again, yeah, people moment. people jumped in, sort of. Yes, uh, not funny. Um, uh, but that's so. This it sort of strikes me as as a little similar to that type of of thing. Yeah, I I think so. But you know, and I think these these moments often happen with uh, with world leaders, with people in the public eye, with everything's being recorded. Certainly, and I just think it it behooves a president, especially, to be particularly circumspect about that kind of thing. And when you have uh, issues like our last two presidents have had, uh, that can be you know more of a more of a problem than with maybe some other more naturally cautious folks. But anyway. Um, so we have mentioned nuclear Armageddon now, so we're covered. Uh, one one last thing I just have start. to throw out. Go ahead. It's kind of a weird pitch to, to funders, isn't it? Well, um, I don't even think it was part of a pitch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. Well, you know, we're, gonna be, we're all going to be dead, so why don't you just give us a well, yeah, so maybe, yeah, so, yeah, maybe it isn't. Like, it look, up. the world's going to end soon, so hey. What's another thousand well dollars? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, and I take know. it with you. Yeah, yeah there you go. <laughs> anyway, interesting fundraising strategy. All right. Well, let's move on. Uh, our first major topic of discussion today, the Biden administration's announcement of sweeping restrictions on the sale of U.S. semiconductor technology to China. The restrictions, which were released by the Commerce Department on Friday, are designed to slow China's development of advanced technology that's directed toward both the advancement of their military and also surveillance, internal surveillance capabilities. Um, the measures include a ban on U.S. companies supplying advanced chips and chip making equipment without a special license, which licenses will only be granted under unusual circumstances. And the new rules also ban any companies around the world that use U.S. technology, software or machinery in their uh, artificial intelligence and supercomputing chips from selling to China as well as banning U.S. citizens from helping the Chinese develop advanced chip technology. Now, these restrictions are reminiscent of the restrictions imposed on Chinese company Huawei in the Trump administration, though these Biden 
administration restrictions cover the entire industry in China and not just a single country. And this move has been expected for months, and it's part of a larger U.S. effort to sort of reestablish our, our former supremacy in computer chip technology. Uh, folks will recall earlier this year, Congress passed bipartisan legislation approving somewhere just over $50 billion in various subsidies for expanding the domestic semicon- semiconductor industry here in the U.S. So, Jay, uh, what are your thoughts on this uh, on this action? I'm actually going to say that this was a good move by the Biden uh, administration. Um, I'm I'm as you know, I'm all for free trade. Uh, That said, uh, there are certain items that we need to be careful uh, about giving away uh, in order to protect one intellectual property of of uh, United States companies. uh, And second, not to provide um, uh, items that can be used. Uh, either improperly internally or or offensively, and I think that's uh, I think that's a good move. Yeah, me too. I mean, my like you, it's not it's not something that's brand new, right? There's been these kind of restrictions on certain types of technology transfer yeah. for years, but it's just the expansion of it. Yeah, I, like you, my default position is usually pro free trade, but I, I I make an exception for countries that. Don't adhere to, uh, I guess you call international norms for kind of fair trade practices. And that includes, you mentioned respect for intellectual property and China's got huge issues with that. But I would also say countries that sort of game the system to open up or to, to demand that other markets be open to their goods, but do certain things that essentially close off their own markets. What kind of skirting those rules? And China definitely does a lot of that. And then there's that also, you know, items that are related to defense and national security. And I would add one other thing is that I'm more likely to be okay with trade restrictions when the U.S. is dealing with uh, a non-democratic country, a country that doesn't respect the rights of its workers and its citizens. So I think there are a lot of reasons here to make a big exception to my usual pro-free trade kind of stance here. And, and like you, I think this is, a, this is a very smart move. Yeah. Remember when we banned the export of uh, Teddy Ruxpin? Teddy, I do not remember the great. You don't remember that? Been, no, I, I this would have been. I, I want to say late late nineties, maybe early two thousands. Oh, I'm in a nostalgic was. mood today. Yeah. Um, no, so. Te- no, Teddy Ruxpin Teddy Ruxpin was this like talking teddy bear, right? Um, I remember it had, that. It had yeah. some kind of sort of computer chips in it, right? And you would it, it would like respond to stuff. You'd be like, "Hey, Teddy, how you doing?" And you know, he'd, he'd talk back to you. Um, but no, it, it found itself on its on the restricted list of, of exports because of these chips um, that the fear was that they could somehow, you know, get into the wrong hands who could turn them into uh, missile guidance systems or something like that. Um, but no, that was a real thing. Um, we were we were banning exports of uh, Teddy Ruxpin uh, to certain countries because of because of that. Look, look it up, people. I'm not making this up. I maybe should have uh, the the image for this this episode to be I pull up an old Teddy Ruxpin or something like people like what the hell is that anyway um all right well uh, uh, we start off with a whole lot of agreement then on something uh, which is always nice now I think as we shift into our next story there might be a little less agreement and that is uh, President Biden's actions this week on marijuana Biden pardoned. Everyone who's been convicted of simple possession of marijuana, that's federal charges, and this 
This mass pardon pertains, again, to anyone convicted under federal law or in the District of Columbia. The total number of people here, in ex- certainly in excess of 6,500. Uh, uh, we don't have an actual number uh, re- released at this point. Now, there are currently no people serving time in federal prison solely for marijuana possession. And so what this pardon will do is it will help people who were previously convicted, uh, make it easier for them to get a job, find housing, qualify for various benefits, that kind of thing. Though one group that the pardon doesn't apply to, any non-citizens or anyone not lawfully present in the country at the time of their offense. So this is just, you know, lawful U.S. citizens only. Um, And in a video that was released announcing this action, Biden said, no one should be in jail just for using or possessing possessing marijuana. It's legal in many states and criminal records for marijuana possession have led to needless barriers to employment, housing and educational opportunities. And that's before you address the racial disparities around who suffers the consequences. While white and black and brown people use marijuana at similar rates. Black and brown people are arrested, prosecuted, and convicted at disproportionate rates. Too many lives have been upended because of our failed approach to marijuana. It's time that we right these wrongs. President Biden also announced that the administration would review how marijuana is classified. In his remarks, Biden said the federal government currently classifies marijuana as a Schedule One substance, the same as heroin and LSD, and more serious than phenytoin. It makes no sense. And the vast majority, I should point out, of convictions for simple possession occur at the state and not at the federal level. And so Biden also called on governors to follow his lead and use their pardon powers in a similar fashion. And some have Democrat Tom Wolf, governor of uh, Pennsylvania. He announced his own large scale pardon for minor nonviolent marijuana offenders an hour after Biden's action was announced. And there are a number of other Democratic gubernatorial candidates who've stated that if elected, they would issue similar pardons. Finally, though, I should point out Biden didn't go as far as many decriminalization advocates would have liked. Uh, And in that White House statement on his actions, he wrote, even as federal and state regulation of marijuana changes, important limitations on trafficking, marketing and underage sales should stay in place. So, Jay, uh, what do you think about this move? And I I, want to talk about it, I think, both from a policy standpoint and then maybe get into potential political ramifications. But what do you think about it as policy? So uh, before I before I dive into that, because this is a little uh, related to uh, marijuana uh, consumption, uh, Teddy Ruxman actually debuted in 1985. Um, but uh, I think it, it was the the later 90s incarnation that had the issue. <laughs> I mentioned that just because Teddy Ruxman is pretty weird and trippy. Um, and I, I would expect that uh, if one under under the influence, like like talking to Teddy Ruxman. Gotcha. Um, <laughs> but no, in, in, ter- in terms of it looks in terms of policy, um, I, I I'm OK with it, I guess. Uh, you know, my my thought is I would tend to agree with you um, on, on a couple fronts. Uh, one, people have been convicted of minor possession offenses uh, that ought not to hold up them getting on with their lives. Um, in most cases, uh, these are minor offenses. It's typically misdemeanor possession. Um, when you get into felony possession, it, things of, of the, the magnitude there, I, I start to, to wonder a little bit, right? Um, and, I, and I'd have to, to, to admit ignorance in terms of uh, 
looking at what the federal statutes are, how much qualifies you for for you know what uh, what level of prosecution. Um, but yeah, and look, generally it would seem to be that uh, this is a a a low scale crime. Um, I I have no constitutional issue with uh, Biden. I think clearly has the authority to to make the pardon. Um, uh, is it into? I'm 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 wondering maybe a little bit as you mentioned. I don't think there's anyone who is sitting in federal prison on on marijuana possession charges not solely. Just that. Uh, yep. Yeah, today. Um, so it's it's not it's not like uh, he's opening the prison gate. It's more like he's allowing a lot of people who may have had a conviction to sort of remove that uh, from their, uh, you know, having to, to note that for employers. Not that really employers would care, I think, these days. But so I guess I guess I, I come out with a this seems to be from a policy thing. It, it's not changing a whole lot. It's not moving the needle a lot. Um, I think there is the the political bounce that, that he probably gets uh, from it uh, a little bit. And and there is always this weird and I'll talk about it and I'll, I'll concede um, the right has sort of a, you know, gun fetish and the left has sort of a pot fetish. And it's just it, it this seems to be sort of a manifestation of that. The libertarians are all for guns and pot. So oh, you know. exactly. Well, there you go. It's best of both worlds. Yeah. Well, well you know, I. I guess I feel well, that I should point out that there are some folks on the right who are arguing that while this may not be unconstitutional, it's in a way kind of an abuse of the power in that the framers didn't intend the pardon power be used to se- to basically Mass kind pardons. of yeah go around saying, well, sure, there's a law against us, but I'm going to pardon everyone who's broken that law, which in effect invalidates that law and it kind of usurps congressional authority to make laws. And I, I think that's not a that's not an unreasonable argument, but strictly going by the letter of the Constitution, there's nothing that prevents him from doing that. So you can say, yeah, he's kind of going against the spirit of it, maybe. Uh, just like you could say that, for instance, uh, President Carter went against the spirit of it when he pardoned everyone who uh, uh, evaded the draft in, in Vietnam. And, and in fact, this Biden mass pardon is the that, largest. That was exactly yeah. the example I was going to use. There yeah. you go. So this is the largest mass pardon since that point. Um, yes. Although, although you could, I think you could, you could make a draw a distinction if I'm, and that's what you pay me for. Yeah. Um, uh, between the uh, pardoning uh, draft dodgers versus uh uh, pot users on the one you can say that dra- some of these draft daughters draft daughters uh draft daughters um uh did so out of a a moral compunction right uh that that they believed uh, vietnam was an unjust war and they were not going to participate in it uh and you could say well this is sort of a limited circumstance uh situation where because of because of that we are um going to pardon those people Whereas I, I think the you don't have that same sort of um, um, moral principle argument uh, uh, that you had a you had a bunch of weed on you. No, I, I I can see that though. I guess I would I would take issue with that to a certain extent. This gets us to a, another conversation, maybe, but that. I feel like if you have a moral objection to something that uh, that your country is doing, uh, sort of 
running away is not really the way to sort of, you know, stand up for that. And so I, no, no, I, I would agree, but so, you know, but anyway, um, and anyway, um, but, but, you know, I, so I guess we do agree largely on this. Now the politics, I, I think one of the reasons why a bunch of Democrat, a, a Democrats haven't kind of jumped on this bandwagon, especially those running for reelection maybe is that the Democrats are already taking a lot of heat for or the connection that Republicans are pushing successfully, I think, about being soft on crime. And while I think there's an important distinction to be made between nonviolent minor drug offenders and the sort of crime we think about when we think about, you know, crime, which we tend to think about violent crime, property crime, that sort of thing. I think a lot of Democrats are probably hesitant to jump in because they don't want to make it easier for those attacks to potentially stick with some voters. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that 100 percent. I think what the the politics of this does um, is sort of puts a big neon sign saying, hi, we're the party of decriminalization. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you're right about that. And, and, and you know, not, not only, you know, might not our, our party might not uh, uh, enforce laws, uh, might uh, might not uh, push for vigorous uh, uh, you know, police police uh, force uh, presences and, and, and police tactics. Uh, we're we're going to, after the fact, uh, uh, pardon people who were actually convicted. Um, so, yeah, I think it, it plays into that that soft on crime narrative very much so. Um, and I'm, I'm going to say so this is this is bigger. Uh, you know, maybe maybe does it does it you know push midterm turnout a little bit? Nah, you know, it, uh, yeah, it's I one of those think. It's one of those at the margins, yeah. right? Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, very margin. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, and I suppose, look, and when you're when you're in a campaign, um, as I've said, it's sort of a game of inches sometimes. And and you're like, well, look, if I can squeak out an extra half percent, whatever, or if, you know, um, uh, a couple more potheads uh, who, who might have forgotten to vote, uh, you know, show up um, and, and help our candidate. Um, you know, all the better. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't think it, it, you know, really, really moves the needle in any meaningful sense. Um, what, what it does do from more of a, a cultural standpoint, I think though, and this is, this is something that, that bugs me a, a little, maybe this isn't even cultural, but, um, and, and what, you know, we can move into the, the, the declassification part because this sort of goes to that. And, um, I'm not, I'm not entirely positive that, that, marijuana is is as benign as as a lot of democrats would paint it um and again that sort of goes to a little bit of what i think is the, the fetishization of uh of of pot on the left but, or a lot of libertarians i just want to point that out or liber and libertarians, libertarians. Yes. they're the ones who are maybe leading but no i i, I agree with you because i the more i've thought about this issue the more skeptical or cautious i've to come about marijuana legalization, um, and which is why I'm actually very much for the reclassification because that's going to make it easier to do good research to get give us that let us have a better sense of this kind of thing because we really that's been one of the problems classifying as a Schedule One has really made it difficult for researchers to do the kind of stuff that we would need to get that sort of information and it's all just sort of a Wild West kind of thing. And I think that's really problematic. I mean, according to, for instance, the CDC uh, a couple of years ago, uh, research has suggested that around 30% of 
marijuana users meet the clinical criteria for addiction, which means that they're not able to stop using despite negative uh, consequences for their health or other life kind of stuff. And, you know, and, and so I think that's, that's significant, right? Especially when you take a look at marijuana use, not surprisingly, way up uh, just uh, over 28 million people in 2009 compared to almost 50 million people in 2020. And those numbers are, are going to be kind of, you know, off, right? Because that's sort of a difficult thing to get a, a real clear handle on. But my point is, is if we're creating a larger class of addicts, uh, that I think that's a considerable considerable public health concern, right? And and it's not also that legalization is this great uh, panacea, because if you take a look, for instance, California, recreational pot's been legal since 2016, but they estimate that the illegal pot market there is double and, the and, size. And, and, and de facto, it was yeah. illegal for you, like probably another 10 years before that. Yeah. And, and I mean, the thing is, is when you legalize and there are taxes that go along and and then people say, well, why don't we just sell this illegally? And in fact, California has recently uh, lowered its pot taxes, trying to find that, I guess, sweet spot, if you will. But my, my larger point being is that I think the most important part of this is the declassification, because I, I you know, I agree with you, I guess, that maybe states have moved a little bit too quickly with not nearly enough good evidence to just say, oh, sure, that's that's fine. And I, I'm, I'm a little I'm a little less uh, uh, sure about that than I was maybe a few years ago. Oh, well, that's that's good to hear. No, and something that that I've and I, I don't have the sources to, to cite to this uh, in front of me. But in studies done of, of places where marijuana has been legalized, I think what they have seen by and large, it's not that you all of a sudden have more people smoking pot, uh, but you have a certain number of people smoking a lot more pot. Yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? It's sort of there are and whether whether you're you're uh, an addict uh, or an enthusiast um, uh, that that seems to be a, a you know, it, it's not it's not a matter of. And I think you could compare this like, look, you know, we have alcohol sales nationwide, um, but uh, alcoholism is a is a problem. And and like, I'm, you know, there are people who can uh, go and, uh, uh, you know, have a beer to unwind on after work on Friday. Uh, there are other people uh, who cannot. Right. Uh, who, who it's you know, if they're going to have one beer, they don't have they don't have a beer. It's either nothing or, you know, five or six or, or whatever your drink of choice you, you, You're talking um, about me here, Jay. I mean, not, not directly, but yeah. I'm not talking about you. I'm exactly one of those people. Never... I'm, I'm, like a, I'm like a nothing or I'm good at, I'm good at abstinence. Oh, okay. yes. I'm good at wretched excess, yeah. but I'm not really good at moderation. And so, I mean, there are plenty of people like that, you know, out yeah. there certainly. And, and my, my point, point there, there'd be many people who might say, hey, I'm, I'm going to have a, a joint and unwind and stuff like that and then can get on with their lives just fine. Uh, there are others uh, for whom it, it doesn't. And, and the other piece that, that I think is, is troubling um, is there there is a, a significant uh, 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 correlation. And again, I'm not going to dive into all the stuff between marijuana and, and significant mental illness like schizophrenia. Um, now, whether it, it's it's causal or not, or whether it's just a uh, you, you, you know, if you have these mental illnesses, you're more attracted to uh, uh, marijuana. Um, I think that's I think that's an issue. Um, if you look at some of these uh, mass shootings, a uh, commonality in a lot of them, and I'm not going to say all of them, um, is uh, significant marijuana use. Uh, and also, if you look at uh, the the um, 
sort of one of the societal problems we have with with young men in our society uh, who are tuning out, dropping out. And I mean, that's again, it's a it's a common, you know, it's a a common factor in, in that. Well, yeah. And again, you're not making a causal argument. You're saying it, it, it seems like these two things often are, are linked in yeah. some way. Yeah. And, you know, on the other side of things, I understand uh, the argument that prohibition of something that everyone is doing is, is, is arguably even worse, right? Because then it breeds a lack of respect for the law and legitimacy issues and that. And so I, I think there's a balance to be found there, but I, I think that sort of you don't necessarily want to get into booster the political system boosting these kind of things. Hey, you know, take something that will make you less aware and kind of be able to tune out. In fact, I would argue that's less of what we need. And you can get into whole kind of neo-Marxist perspectives on how how the ruling elites and the owners of capital would love us to be just kind of dazed and confused. And oh, I know I, I'd say quite the contrary. I, I to me, it's it's a um... Uh, so often of, of employers I hear from uh, is that they can't find people to work. Uh, one, because they can't pass a drug test. Now, again, maybe you, you don't need a, to pass a drug test to, uh, you know, whatever, work at a fast food place, or maybe you do. Um, but certainly if you're in an industrial setting or you're driving a forklift or something like yeah. that, yeah, it's yeah. important. Um, and and I think that's, you know, we have this sort of um, you know, issue right now where we have uh, people who are not filling jobs and, and the, you know, the message I think ought to be uh, get off your ass and get to work. Um, that's going to be my campaign slogan, Mike. Um, and the wider dis, uh, dis, uh, distribution of marijuana would seem to be um, uh, uh, counter to that message. All right, Jay. So we have, uh, well, this week, I should point out, Donald Trump filed an emergency appeal before the Supreme Court. And in his appeal, his attorneys argued that the 11th Circuit Court of Appeal should not have ordered that those 100 seized documents marked as classified, that they shouldn't have been excluded from review by Special Master Raymond Deary. The argument has generally in the media been explained as being highly technical, which is basically media speak for this is really complicated and we think you'll get confused. You don't get it. Yeah. So, you know, and, but it's important to note, we will get into that. It's important to note, though, that Trump is not asking the court to block the Justice Department from using the classified documents until they're reviewed by the special master. So this is a very limited sort of appeal, if you will. And uh, the appeal went to Justice Thomas, not because of any sort of conspiracy theory thing, just because of Jenny. It, well, yeah. <laughs> no, not because of Jenny. Right. But because he's just the person who's in charge of receiving appeals from uh, uh, from the uh, right. that circuit, yes. it's the circuit he oversees. Um, yes. So, yeah. And to be and then actually, I'll, I'll throw this out because it's an interesting factoid. Every circuit has its own sort of presiding uh, justice who sort of who sort of keeps tabs on them. Uh, if you will. And um, uh, yeah, it, it's just I, mean, I I just I think that's kind of fascinating, geeky, that you have a Supreme Court justice who kind of looks over you. You're like the kind of, RA you know, for the circuit, basically. Exactly. Yeah. Terms. And that's, that's yeah. a good example. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and and Judge uh, Justice Thomas is the RA for the 11th Circuit. Yeah. So and, and so I, I think, Jay, the, where we need to start off 
here is with some of those technical terms, because I think our listeners won't be confused and are actually interested in this. So can, can you maybe start us off by explaining uh, a couple of terms that I think are very important to this uh, uh, interlocutory decision and also what it is and how it is that they're not necessarily appealable, at least not right away? Yes. So, so the deal is with uh, appeals. Uh, what the appeals court wants, what we want as a society is for the, the purposes of uh, judicial efficiency, right, is if you're going to have an appeal, you ought to appeal everything all at once. So the, the, the standard default rule is uh, the court will issue at the end of the case, right? The court may have a whole bunch of rulings uh, throughout the case, some involving discovery, some involving what testimony comes in, some involving issues of law. Uh, some involving uh, evidence, uh, and 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 all of this, uh, you know, comes up to then you have a final judgment of the court, and the judge, the the court then will typically stamp it, literally stamp that says final appealable order, which means, look, we have decided all the issues in this case. There's nothing left to uh, to for for the trial court to to decide. This is over, and there and at that point then that whole judgment can be taken up uh, to the Court of Appeals, uh, whether it's federal, state, whatever. The, the principle works the same uh, both places. Um, and, and again, that's, that's the idea, because otherwise you have people, uh, you would have people who are uh, appealing stuff throughout the case, and it would, you know, cases would drag on far, far longer than they even do right now. So interlocutory orders are, are orders that interlocutory comes from the Latin sort of like while we are talking. Um, uh, which are those orders which are, are, you know, while you're talking with the court, while the case is going on. Uh, they don't finally settle the case. It might be, uh, listen, I'm going to rule that this piece of evidence can come in uh, or not come in. Uh, and then what happens is you go to trial, and, and at the end of the day, then if you lost, uh, uh, then you can appeal, well, that piece of evidence should have come in. Um, so that's interlocutory uh, orders are typically not appealable um, for the reasons I just went into, that judicial efficiency and uh, getting everything teed up to the Court of Appeals at once. Um, there are exceptions, though. And, and this is, is when, when you're going to get into the collateral order doctrine, right? That's exactly right. Okay. Right? Uh, <laughs> these collect, uh, exceptions under what's called the collateral order doctrine um, get to when you, you can have an interlocutory order that can, in effect, decide the case, right? Uh, and I should, I should say the, the opposite of interlocutory is what's called dispositive order, um, which is essentially summary judgment for X plaintiff, uh, something like that. Um, so if you've got an order that's, that's interlocutory, but um, could essentially decide the case or render the case moot, uh, or uh, would impede upon some other substantial legal right, like in this case, a privilege, uh, then you can appeal those uh, immediately. And the idea is, I, I sort of mentioned this a couple weeks ago when we were talking about this, uh, about these claims of privilege is, you know, once once you lose privilege, it's gone, right? It's the bell that right. can't be unrung. Right. Um, uh, so, so therefore, privilege questions typically do fall into that collateral estoppel, or not collateral estoppel, collateral order. Um, uh, exception. Um, and, and I think that's, that's essentially what's being argued here is, is, uh, you know, it should be appealable because, 
if right. the privilege is gone, uh, at that point it's gone, uh, and and uh, Trump is you know forever uh, prejudiced by that. So, and, and I think that's that's sort of it, it in a nutshell. Yeah, it seems to me that part of the reason, maybe understanding why. Trump's appeal seems so limited because it's not focusing, uh, it's not asking uh, the Supreme Court to tell the Department of Justice to uh, once again stop using the documents. It seems to me that that part of the order is an injunction that Judge Cannon said, stop using these documents and injunctions uh, are, are actually right immediately appealable as opposed to okay so and i think that maybe helps to explain why trump didn't ask for more because his attorney said listen we're not going to win on this but we could potentially win on arguing that the the, that the 11th circuit didn't have uh didn't have uh jurisdiction uh on this more generally And, and so in in my understanding of this in reading over the uh, the brief or the, the documents filed by Trump's attorneys, it seems to me that actually they, they maybe have kind of a case here. And I'm wondering what you think about that. There you go again, defending Donald Trump. You know, it's, um, <laughs> no, I, 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 this is, this is what I've been saying for a couple of weeks and I've taken all kinds of heat for it. Um, and, and it's, it's not so much a, a, a case of they have a, they have a point necessarily on the merits, like they're going to win. Um, but the point is, uh, is this an issue that ought to be looked at before the before the case moves further? Uh, and thus, it's, it should be immediately appealable. And, and again, I think, yes, uh, I think uh, Trump's claims for executive privilege are pretty thin. Um, but that said, their claims for executive privilege. And, and uh, this this is a the first time you've had a sitting president's Justice Department investigating a former president, the, the immediately preceding former president and potential, uh, you know, presidential candidate. Um, and in, in that case, uh, I, I think it's it's wise to say, look, let's let's take our time. And, and what he's essentially asking would be um, that the Justice Department can't use this until the special master has looked at it and screened for privilege. Um, which again strikes me as under the circumstances not unreasonable. Right. Well, although just to be clear, he, in that appeal, he's he's actually not asking the Justice Department or not asking the Supreme Court to tell the Justice Department to stop using the documents until they're reviewed by the special master. Just saying that these documents do have to be reviewed by the special master. And so, I mean, that's right, a, right. That, that's one of those weird distinctions. I think that's based on what is potentially immediately appealable and what isn't immediately appealable. But all this stuff at the end would be uh, subject or grounds for appeal. And and some folks would argue that, well, that's exactly what Trump and his attorneys are doing, is they're just trying to drag this out as long as possible. But in the end, it seems to me that... The- well, and to some extent, I, I think they're right. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's what... Um, you may be shocked to find this, but that's what a lot of defendants do. There you go. Yeah, I'm and certainly, though, I think in the end, it's not going to matter a whole heck of a lot. Um, and, and this maybe gets to a related story here. Uh, on Wednesday, the 11th Circuit, the same 11th Circuit, they granted the Justice Department's request for an expedited appeal. Um, uh, in the request, the government said, well, our 
our inability to access those non-classified documents that we seized. They're actually uh, holding back our investigation in significant ways. And so the appeals court said, okay, they set a deadline of October 14th for the government to submit their brief on November 10th for Trump's folks to respond. And then November 17th for any kind of reply brief from the government. And so that's, uh, and so I wondered what you thought about that ruling. Uh, any thoughts on, you know, the consequence, the significance of that sort of thing? Well, I mean, at this point, we don't really have a ruling ruling, right? We have a briefing. Schedule. Right. Okay. And so, um, but I mean, they yeah, could have. So but, but I think, look, I think that's, that's the right, that's the right procedure, right? Say, look, this is important. You say it's uh, something, we, it's time sensitive. Uh, so let's do an expedited briefing schedule and, and let's get a decision on that in the merits. So I, I think that's, to me, that, that seems to be exactly what the, I would expect the court to do. And, and, uh, you know, that, that seems to be proceeding, uh, expeditiously, but, but still with, uh, uh you know, due respect for all the, the rights of all the parties involved. So do you think that in the end, this just goes back to what the former uh, Trump attorney general, Bill, Bill Barr said, and this is just sort of a, a, a brief or even maybe a not so brief rain delay, but it's not really going to affect anything that, that ultimately happens. Yes, ab- absolutely. Yeah. Okay. No. And I, I've said that, I've said that from, uh, from day one, um, uh, that, that, yeah, it, it's, let's look, it's, I, I get here. Let me, let me, let me expand on the the rain delay metaphor um, <laughs> um and and this is my reason and i'm i shouldn't even talk about this um say say there is a a uh you're you're playing the game um and you know storms start to come in it starts raining um uh oh my god actually i have, I have an even better one i won't get out well and and look, it's 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 raining, and you're thinking, well, look, we can still push through this. We still push through this. The one team says, we really got to get through this. Come on, we're we're winning. Um, and then what you have happen is it's it's slippery, and the pitcher slips off the mound, twists his ankle, is is hurt seriously, you know, out for the rest of the the playoffs. Um, right at that point, you would say, wow, we really should have taken a rain delay there, and uh, we could have gone back and played the game. Uh, everything would have been fine. It probably would have turned out the same way. Um, the counter um, uh, argument, uh, one that, that strikes me very personally, um, is the 1990, uh, or the, the I'm sorry, the, the um, uh, uh, 2016 World Series, um, wherein the Cleveland Indians were, were on their way to, to cruising to a World Series win uh, they had the momentum and then rain came in and they pulled out the tarps and everybody had to wait a couple, a couple hours. Uh, and then, uh, the Cubs came back and won. Um, that's, that's sort of the government's fear. Um, and it's, it, it hurts me to say that I'm, you know, as an Indians fan and, and, uh, you know, I'm on the same side as the government here. Um, but, but that's the issue, right? Is that if the government feels, Hey, there's, we got the momentum, we don't want a rain delay. Um, uh, so no, I think that's that's sort of an apt metaphor, and I I think in most cases, um, it doesn't change things uh, drastically. And look, even with the special master stuff, um, that has not gone uh, as well as Trump might have hoped. Um, so, well, and, and one difference, though, I would I would say between the, the metaphor with metaphor here in real life is that if in fact uh, the Donald Trump is guilty of 
committing certain crimes and he is using this delay to uh, in some way make it less likely he's convicted that I mean that's different than a team that just says well let's just kind of it's not about momentum and winning or losing it's about you know who if someone is actually breaking the law here and and that's that's a whole different kind of element yeah, well that's yes not- no um because here's the thing if you are look a lot of a lot of times the the goal is um and I see this more in, in civil cases than you do in criminal, but um, look, just if, if you're losing, um, just keep delaying uh, and and maybe things will break your way, right? Maybe there's something that comes up. Maybe there's some new piece of evidence uh, that, that, uh, that, that you didn't know about. Uh, some other witness comes forward, uh, the, the prosecutor gets hit by, hit by a bus, um, whatever, right? That if you're, you know, it, you you get to a point of like, look, things are going bad all around. Um, um, yeah, no, know, I, I, I'm, I'm, yeah. what I'm saying is that when you have, when you're talking about like baseball or whatever kind of sports with, with delays, you know, it's one thing saying, well, it's, this is about, this is about safety and momentum. Oh, I understand. It's, yeah, it's another thing. Saying, yeah. Yes. It's, it's another thing. If one team says, yes, let's have a rain delay because that will give us more time to get rid of our cork bats. Right. And that right. would be like, yeah. well, that's not okay. That's not legitimate. Right. So yeah, that, that's all. Right. So right. No, no, that that would not be. Okay. Um if you're yeah. If if you're some if you're somehow saying that yes, yeah, doing justice is more important, the justice system is more important than uh, the Cleveland Indians winning winning the World Series. Um you, you, you would know. you would maybe take issue with that? I don't know. <laughs> I would I would I would take issue with that. But um, you know. All right. Um, so Okay, well, you know, let, I mean, justice okay. is important than all, but you know. yeah, yeah, you got to get your priorities, I think. So, well, well, let's kind of stay on the whole kind of justice, I guess, uh, theme, if you will, because of course, this past Monday was the first Monday in October, and that's a big deal for court watchers because that's when the Supreme Court begins its term every year. And this term, joining the court for the first time, we have Judge Jackson, who's replacing uh, retired Judge Breyer, and. Now, that change in personnel isn't likely to mean a whole lot in terms of general outcomes because, of course, Republican-appointed justices still occupy six of the nine seats on the court. Now, there are a number of cases on the docket in which the court could, I think, hand down decisions with pretty wide-ranging implications. There's that challenge to kind of the last vestiges of the Voting Rights Act coming out of Alabama. There's this college admissions affirmative action case. Uh, There's uh, the independent state legislature theory going to be put to test a bunch of things. And we will be talking about those specific cases when they're actually argued and decided by the court. So today, though, we wanted to focus on is the court sort of as an institution. And I want to start things off, Jay, by just asking you kind of a general question, a very general question. What sort of shape would you say that I guess the court specifically and federal courts are in in general right now as we, you know, stand here, sit here, whatever? Um, pretty good. I mean, <laughs> I, I, mean I mean, a, not just in terms. Uh, I guess, I, uh, yeah. I guess, what I mean is in terms of public perception and legitimacy yeah. and that sort of thing. I, I would, I would still say pretty good. Okay. Um, yeah, I would. I, I think uh, courts, uh, the just court system in general, uh, still enjoys a lot more respect and the idea of legitimacy more so than uh, elected branches or elected officials. Um, and and I, and I think that's I think that's right, and I think that's that's appropriate. Um, are there does that that 
reputation ebb and flow, uh, yes, um, I, I think it does. And it, it, it ebbs and flows on a couple things. Um, one is sort of consistency of decisions, I think. Uh, another, I, I hesitate to, to throw it out there, is, is popularity of decisions. Um, but, but I think if you have one, you can live through the, the others, right? Um, you can, you know, for example, you can say Brown versus the board was, was in many cases an unpopular decision in many quarters. Um, uh, it was, it was, uh, you know, screamed out as, as illegitimate in many quarters. Um, but, uh, the consistency of, of that opinion, the, the correctness of that opinion, um, I, I think changed minds down the road um i mean the long-term trend the long-term trend is still toward less respect and uh toward the court and less less of a feeling that they're doing the right thing and 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 that sort of thing so i mean and and in fact you know i don't know i mean you have i mean i i know i would let's let's say there's there's a trend but i would say um uh, compared to compared to when right um i mean over the last say 20 years or so Certainly. I mean, yeah. looking at the yeah. polling data, but and certainly while approval is better than for other branches. Right. But it's still uh, kind of a, at at new lows, basically, over time. I mean, in the early 2000s, it was, you know, approval was in the in the low 60s. And now we're in the, you know, in the kind of 40s somewhere. And sure, some of that may be. There are some short-term things, obviously, but there are longer-term, I think, factors just in general, Americans having less trust in institutions and government and that sort of thing. But, you know, we also have a situation where, unlike ever before, we have Supreme Court justices talking a lot about the legitimacy of the court and, you know, Chief Justice Roberts saying, hey, you can disagree with decisions, but that doesn't mean that the court is illegitimate. And uh, and even I think it was Justice Kagan who at least obliquely suggested that maybe people have a right to be concerned with what seems like partisan hackery. Um, and I can't I don't have a quote right in front of me. But my point is that the justices themselves are talking about this more than they have in. Well, certainly in my memory. Yeah, and that's and that's a little unfortunate. Um, uh, well, maybe. More than a little unfortunate, well, I think. May, maybe, and, and here's why I say maybe because it certainly would be wrong to just say, "Well, the court decided against me, ergo the court is illegitimate." Right? I mean, it's, it's wrong as it would be to say, "Well, we lost this election, therefore the election must be rigged." Right? So, okay, that's exactly. But there can be cases where. Uh, where someone makes a decision and that decision has been made, in fact, for reasons that are not legitimate, in which case people would be right to raise that question. And so I, I guess in it, Correct. It, so I, I don't think that Justice Rod, Chief Justice Roberts is saying that, well, you can never question the legitimacy of the court. He's just saying that shouldn't be your default, basically, if you lose. Well, okay. and I think there's also there's also a distinction to be drawn between. um saying the court got it wrong on a particular decision and saying the court's illegitimate uh, or saying that uh, the the decision is illegitimate because of bad motives or or something like that. And, Um, you know, and and I want to get into that because, you know, a lot of listeners know that on last week's episode, Ken repeatedly characterized federal district court judge Eileen Cannon as being corrupt. And, you know, if you've been listening for a while, you also probably know that Ken has not shied away from calling many of the conservatives on the Supreme Court corrupt. 
as well. And, um, you know, Ken isn't with us today, but I wanted to talk about this. And so I, I contacted him and said, listen, what do you what do you mean by this? And I had a sense. And so I think it's important to to get this out there. And so uh, he, he had a lot to say on it. And I just kind of want to pull out some snippets that I think maybe might help uh, people understand what he means by this. And then Jay, you and I can kind of talk about this a little bit. But what what Ken said in response to this, when I said, well, what do you mean by corrupt? He said, I imagine that they all think that they're following the laws. They see it. And the space for their corruption is created by the sad fact that there's no accepted universal methodology that dictates law or dictates how to interpret or discover the law. And so there's a lot of room for judges to cherry pick methods to obtain desired results in particular cases. And Ken continues, in my view, doctrine that is adhering to judicial precedent is the most legitimate and the most principled of the methods of legal interpretation. And it's the one that all judges below a jurisdiction's highest court are almost always supposed to follow. Supreme Court justices are less constrained by precedent in principle, but in practice, if they won't prioritize it in their judicial decision-making, then there's usually nothing to stop them from deciding cases according to their partisan preference through a cherry-picked patchwork of theories reverse-engineered to reach a particular result. And he says, I call this mode of judicial decision-making corrupt. I think it's especially stark in particular areas of law, such as cases involving voting rights, campaign finance law, and districting. In those areas of law, I don't think a single sitting Republican justice has ever voted against the political interest of the Republican Party in any major case. But I don't think, yeah. that, but I don't think that they have the self-awareness to understand their own corruption. So that's, that's Ken's kind of more in-depth uh, depiction of what he means by corruption. and actually. On that definition, I don't, I don't disagree with him. I think that's. I would not use the term corruption. Uh, I would use motivated reasoning. I would use kind of inherent bias that we all have as human beings. I don't think corruption is the correct word, but I think based on what he's saying, I, I certainly agree with his underlying reasoning. Though I would use a different word. And so I wanted to get your take on that, though. Um. <clears throat> Well, just just for the record, I did not say that the Supreme Court lacks the self awareness to uh, be aware of their own corruption. Um, okay, well, if, yes, we if, have a- if any if anyone from the Ohio Bar uh, Disciplinary Council uh, Disciplinary Council's office is listening, um, the the words and uh, and uh, thoughts of of Ken Katkin are not my own. Um, no, I, I I look if if. One, I, I have to take issue with with Ken because I I do think corruption, um, he can he can define it as as how he means it, but it's got a really real meaning, um, in the judiciary and in legal situations, um, and, and that is it implies uh something that there is, um, in fact, criminal. What it is a a a um decision-making process that is based on either uh, a personal interest or a political interest uh, that is not made uh, in the interests of, of justice or the law as, as they see it. Um, one can become, uh, there, there's a lot of substantial case law out there um, on issues of attorney, what attorneys can say, criticizing the court. And this is, this is Mike, this is a little weird, right? Because it's something that, that struck me as weird when I got to law school. Um, you as a as an American non-attorney citizen, 
Uh, you can say whatever the hell you want. And uh, I do. About any judge, <laughs> any court, and you do. Um, right? And, and you are completely within your, your First Amendment rights to do so. And if any government agency uh, tried to come after you for that, uh, I would be the first uh, to defend you um, at a reasonable rate. Um, but um, for attorneys, it's, it's different. Uh, when you're a lawyer, uh, you surrender some of your First Amendment rights uh, in exchange for the privilege of practicing law. <clears throat> that's that's what the, the case law says, right? And part of that goes to when you're an attorney, you have, uh, you have a couple duties, right? You always have a duty to your clients, but you also have a duty to the system, uh, to upholding the integrity and reputation of the system. Um, because if that integrity and reputation goes away, um, to some extent, so does your livelihood. Uh, so as you can say, it's self-interested. Uh, you can say it's high-minded uh, either way. And, and one of these, these tenets is you, you can't go around calling judges corrupt or implying that they made decisions on political motives or financial motives or, or anything other than the law, unless you've got some really damn good evidence to show. Uh, if you do have some really good damn evidence, then there's a process to do that. Um, uh, and again, uh, Mike, this this doesn't apply to to uh, non-combatants like yourself, right? You can say whatever you want, um, but the reason is uh, a lot of times, and I've and I've, I've done this, and, and just think about this for a minute, right? Uh, if you're a litigant in a case and you you go into this case saying, "I've got this, I know I'm right," because because every almost every litigant believes in their heart that they are they are right. Uh, otherwise, they wouldn't be doing this. Um, and uh, the judge rules against you. Well, what's your response to that? It must be crooked, right? Because right? otherwise, how, how can he come out? Because right, I'm right. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how can he not see this? This is plain. And, and there, there may be reasons. Of, well, well, listen, because X, this is what the law says. This is what the statute says. And maybe it's not fair. Maybe it's not right. Maybe you disagree. But that's what it says. Uh, it could also be of, look, maybe you did have this really good evidence. Uh, that is is really compelling to you and maybe should have been compelling to the jury, but the judge said, no, it's not coming in because of whatever evidentiary rule. Um, uh, and so there are a lot of those those types, and, and I've had plenty of those conversations where I shouldn't say plenty, but I've but I've but I've had those those conversations where you know people say, oh, you think something's up? You think the judge? And the answer is no. Uh, you know, sometimes the court just doesn't see it your way. Um, there can also be that, right? Even setting aside the, um, uh, the you know, what the, the, the law they're constrained to work within, the evidentiary rules, sometimes you have a judge who just doesn't see it your way. Um, and and I, I yeah, can, I can well, say, look, I, I disagree, and, and, but to ascribe that script. And the reason, so uh, let me, I have a, a point and I, I will get to it. <laughs> the reason um, that, that you don't want attorneys just saying this uh, is that, uh, attorneys are, are presumed to have sort of a, a better knowledge uh, of the law and of when, you know, there is real corruption. Um, and so you don't want people just crying wolf, right? If there is, if there is corruption, uh, it's a big deal and it ought to be shouted out, right? This is, this is really, really bad. If, if every decision you disagree with is corrupt, uh, again, you get into a boy who cried wolf type situation. Uh, and just brings the, everybody into disrepute. And the second piece is judges aren't free to defend themselves. 
Uh, and that's that's something that's that's pretty important is when you call a judge corrupt, that judge is is ethically um, prohibited from going out and talking, and even if not ethically prohibited, uh, then then just prudentially prohibited from going around and saying no, I'm not corrupt, uh, or or approve it or defend. Uh, and that that's the other rationale that courts have said. And listen, uh, attorneys have limited rights when they criticize the, the judiciary. So those those are kind of my points. And and God knows there's plenty of courts I disagree with, and there's plenty of decisions I disagree with. And and it's perfectly fine to disagree with a decision. Uh, courts of appeals, litigants, uh, uh, law law review article writers do it all the time and and for a living. Um, but but to to say something else to ascribe a a motive that is is corrupt, and I understand Ken may be using the word differently, um, but I I think that's I. I so I mean, do you I, think I don't like, think you can use the word corrupt differently? Well, I I I think in that context. Gotcha. I I understand what you're saying from kind of a a legal attorney perspective, but I think in in terms of certainly and 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 as I've said, I would not use the word corrupt, even though I. I agree with Ken's underlying argument. In, in fact, I agree with it, and I think it applies to both conservative and to liberal judges. In that we are we're human beings, and there's a there's a extensive, a vast literature on how human beings almost all use a certain extent motivated reasoning to get to certain conclusions that they prefer for whatever reasons. And that's, Absolutely. And that's almost yeah. always, or that's often an unconscious thing. And, and so plenty of people, and that's what Ken is saying, you know, that, well, I'm sure they think that they're not doing anything wrong and there's certainly no personal gain or anything like that. But when you, and so in that sense, I think, you know, he's absolutely right. Uh, that happens all the time because we're human beings, and there's a good reason why, say, Republican-appointed judges, for instance, almost always side on some of these issues with, I don't know if it's all the time, like Ken says, but almost all the time, because they yeah, were picked. Justice Gorsuch. Well, you know, or, well, or, was, was yeah. they were, I mean, they were chosen because of their yeah. past views on that sort of thing, especially, I think, more and more as we go into the modern court. You know, I think a lot of conservatives saw... Chief Justice Roberts is kind of like a, a a great example of what how not to choose a justice for the court because like wow he turned out to be too squishy we're not going to make that mistake again and so therefore if you pick people who are inherently more ideologues you're going to get more ideologically consistent decisions without those decisions being corrupt in the terms kind of standard legalistic terms but certainly being motivated by that underlying ideology. Yeah, I, look, I, I I would agree that everyone, when they come to the bench, brings uh, ideology and the way they look at the law with them. Yeah. Um, and I think that's that's to be expected. Um, and I think that's I actually think that's a good thing. Right. Um, because if, if you if you come in and say, listen, I've got this this consistent ideologically ideological perspective, uh, this is how I'm going to, to rule on things. Um and and you stick to it, uh, you you build that that credibility. And obviously, I think you can make the argument. And some of some have made. There was a, a book that I'm, I'm I haven't read. I've read the book review, and I'm gonna. But Erwin uh, Shermaninsky, uh, a professor at uh, Stanford, uh, wrote a book sort of criticizing um, the idea of, of originalism or textualism. 
And one of his criticisms is, well, they don't stick to it. But to me, that's not that's not a a, a, a criticism of the theory. That's a failure right. of of certain judges to to adhere to it. Right. Uh, they, you know, they don't follow their own rules. Uh, fair enough. Um, uh, but. Uh, sorry, I just said. No, uh, but, but I think that's, that's but, the human condition. I mean, we. we yeah. Yeah. And so that's understandable. And uh, we would hope that judges that everyone, everyone right in the political system would at least be aware of that. And I think one of the problems may be. That's unique to the Supreme Court or anyone who has kind of lifetime tenure without any sort of a check, even from an appeals court, because they are, you know, they're, they're the final word, is that it's probably very easy to drink too much of your own Kool-Aid and just start to think, well, you know, I'm certainly not biased. And we've, we've talked about this in a way, Jay, before talking about the recusal issue, right? I would think that lower court judges would be a little more likely to consider these things carefully because they know that. Those decisions to recuse or not can be reviewed, whereas if you're on the Supreme Court, it's like, well, you know, what? I, there's no there's no appeal on that. And so I think it can be particularly problematic when we get to a level where there is no more appeal. Yeah, and and, and I've I've said this before, um, but I'll say it again, because it's it's one, it's kind of clever and two, it's it's uh, it's correct. Um, the Supreme Court isn't final because it's right. It's right because it's final, right? Um, and that, yeah. So it, and, and that's you know that that essentially means that you know, listen, it it's not that we that the Supreme Court is infallible, but they are just the last word. Um, now and again, I I can disagree with Ken on and his his idea about, the, about precedent that to some extent, um, uh, there there it is appropriate. Uh, and there's, you know, a test spelled out for this when precedent ought to be abandoned, um, as it was in Brown, as it was in Dobbs, uh, as it was in, um, uh, well, some like the overruling Lochner cases. Um, right. There 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 comes a time when when uh, courts need to say, look, we decided this case, but uh, we got it wrong um, or the our predecessors got it wrong. Uh, and I think that's that's an important judicial function. Um, And and I think I'll say on Ken's argument about precedent, I I certainly agree with him that uh, being very deferential of precedent certainly makes it more difficult for justices to inject their own human biases into things. But in a sense, though, it just changes the locus of the problem because it's just replacing th- that still previous courts have injected their biases, right? And so you're just saying, well, let's just let their biases stand. Well, that's, that's not really necessarily to me a solution. It just sort of, like I said, changes where the, where the, where the bias is coming from, essentially. So there's, in the end, you know, there's just no good reason. And when I, when I talk about, you know, judicial interpretation to the students in class, I listen, this is not a mechanistic sort of thing. It's always going, there's always an inherent subjectivity in this kind of thing. And there's no way to take that out. It would be great if there were, but yeah. that's just not how the law works. Well, I don't even know if it would be great if it were right. Um, because look, courts are a a human institution. I see. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, I mean, like, and, it would be and, great. It would be great yeah. to know if we absolutely knew exactly what every word of the Constitution and the law meant, and it was not open to interpretation. That would make life a lot simpler. But that's just not how language and people work, basically. 
Well, and not only that, but there is the uh, who who decides that, right? I mean, yeah. if we were to create some some great uh, AI system right now that it could be, you know what I mean, synthesize all of all of uh, uh, written law uh, and come up with the the correct answer. Um, It'd have Chinese we chips. That? We couldn't trust that. Yeah, you know. So. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> with the chips made and the, the Chinese have have taken from us. Um, uh, no, I, I think that's. That's you know courts are a a human institution, um, and uh, you know look we're always you know we we live in an imperfect world and to say that any system uh, political system judicial system is is perfect um, I think you just you can't say that and and you always ought to have some sort of um, mechanism for amendment uh or or fixing problems down the road or even just realizing that maybe the problem you're looking at now isn't the problem now and again it's it's different at the the supreme court versus uh lower courts um in a lot of cases there are there are issues where uh i i i think quite properly um you know a case i was involved in maybe a year or two ago with the sixth circuit um where the court ruled against uh uh what i was uh, hoping for but I would also say they got it completely right. Um, they said, listen, um, you know, we we think, um, you know, you, you got a really good argument here. Uh, uh, but there's this Supreme Court case that sort of says the other and we can't really reconcile them. Uh, and this is this is above our pay grade. And this is something, you know, we're bound to follow precedent. And so in, in a lot of ways, look, it wasn't the result that that I had wanted. Um but I think it was the exact correct result if you were if you were a judge saying, listen, this is the precedent we're bound to follow. Uh, uh, if you disagree, please take it up with the Supreme Court. And, you know, in, in, in the end, I know we're running a little long, but I, but I want to point out just to kind of uh, wrap this up and say that nobody uh, on this uh, on this podcast is saying that federal judges or the Supreme Court and more specifically, that they're saying, okay, what is the outcome that I want here? And how do I reach that? That that no one is, even Ken is not saying that there's this like conscious thing of like, well, how can I get my side to win? Because that would be, that would be certainly corruption. And uh, and that's the kind of corruption you're talking about, Jay. And that would definitely be illegitimate. And while that has happened in the past, certainly uh, every once in a while, that is not what anyone is saying is happening on the Supreme Court or in general in federal courts uh, uh, right now. So I just wanted to make that clear. All right. Well, with that, before we do go, I want to thank our newest supporter, Jonathan, on Patreon. Thank you so much. It really does help keep things going, and we really do appreciate your support. Um, And also, if you are not already a supporter, we hope you'll consider becoming one because, like I said, without you, we couldn't keep on doing this week after week. And supporters get all kinds of good stuff, you know, ad-free versions of everything we put out, our our supporter-exclusive midweek show where Jay and I are going to be in just a minute here talking about all kinds of stuff like uh, maybe our updated midterm predictions that things are looking a little less good from my side, I I would say, and and maybe uh, some ideas of politics as a fight of good against evil or the forces of light against the forces of darkness. Jay, 
I'm sorry, you would be the forces of darkness here in this scenario. But uh, anyway, maybe some other stuff as well. A ranked choice voting. Uh, we, that's, want... that's what the forces of darkness always say, <laughs> though, isn't it? It's the other you know, sides of forces of darkness. That, that's true. That's true. But anyway, there's a lot of good stuff. And uh, if you are if you are a supporter, you will get that. And by the way, if you would like to hear all that stuff, but you're not in a position financially to support the show, we, we never want that to be a v- barrier. So please. If that's if that's you, just send me an email, mikeatpoliticsguys.com, and I will get you set up with access to our midweek show. And whether you're a supporter or not, it really does help us out if you can subscribe, rate and review us on whatever podcast app you're using, and share episodes on social media. And as always, we love hearing from you. There's our Discord for supporters that's very active, and you Tell us all kinds of stuff. Also, we're on Facebook and Twitter. You'll find links in the show notes. And you can also email us at mail at politicsguys.com. And finally, before we go, a special thanks, as always, to our wonderful executive producers, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andre Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, and Don Oglesby. We'll be back with a new episode next week. We hope you'll join us.